If music had a DNA, one of the strands would be dedicated to the Lennon family. Beginning when Bill and Ted Lennon sang in the 1940s swing band, and the Lennon sisters sang for Lawrence Welk in the 60s. Today, Michael Lennon, brother Mark, and cousins Kip and Pat continue the musical legacy with their band, Venice. Michael leads this critically acclaimed L.A. quartet as they buck trendiness of pop music to deliver harmonic sounds that have been compared to Crosby, Stills, and Nash, The Eagles, Poco, and The Little River Band. Venice, as a band, is recorded with Jackson Brown, Stevie Nicks, Warren Zevon, David Crosby, Brian Wilson, and Phil Collins. To top it off, the group headlines performances and popular websites draw thousands of devoted fans to their own worldwide. Here's a track from their 2004 album, Pacific Standard Time. This is I'll Keep My Fingers Crossed. Hey you, how I wish you would call me right now. You know how I've done everything that I possibly could, that I should. I've tried, but my hands have been tied, cause I don't want to scare you. So I'm writing this one to say I'll keep my fingers crossed We'll find everything we lost We've already paid the cost I'll keep my fingers crossed Hey you, has it ever occurred to you I'm just a Inside Music Cast welcomes Michael Lennon of Venice. Hey, Michael, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. On, uh, on this edition of Inside Music Cast, we're very privileged to have uh, correspondent Scott Gross with us today. So he'll be joining us with some discussion and some questioning. So welcome, Scott. Hi, guys. How are you? 
<laughs> Good. And, uh, you know, Scott was uh, instrumental in setting this up for us. Uh, he was the driving force behind this interview. So, Scott, we appreciate you helping us out with that. Um, you know, I just wanted to start off with the, our, our, our first comment here, first question. You know, the, the Lennon family in general just has such a rich musical heritage. And, you know, just from the start, can you just share a little, going way back, can you share with our audience a little bit about your family? I mean, particularly the Lennon brothers and, of course, the Lennon sisters. Sure. Well, it started in the 40s and 50s with um, our dads, who were the Lennon brothers, uh, even before we, Kip and I, were born, or the members of Venice were even born. Yeah. They were singing together in a vocal group, and they did radio stuff and sure. different things. Well, then they grew these huge families of 12, 13, 9, and 7 kids each, <laughs> and they had to kind of give up the singing thing, but it's always every family Christmas and everything, they would sing again. But one of them gave birth to four incredible girls that could all sing incredible harmony that he worked with. Mm-hmm. And that was the Lennon sisters from the famous Lawrence Welk show. Yeah. And they were a singing group. And those are my cousins and um, Kip and Pat, who are also in Venice. They are their older sisters. So we had this crazy upbringing of watching television on Saturday nights um, and watching them on the Lawrence Welk show like our whole childhood. And it was a huge part of us learning harmonies and then taking it into our generation with uh, influence of, you know, Motown and Jackson Brown and Joni Mitchell and California, and we put all that together, and then Venice is like the, the next generation of that thing. And then now there's yeah. even younger kids, believe it or not, coming up below us, so wow. pretty incredible. But yeah. it's definitely a family legacy that's came here, you know, it's been in the family since the 40s and 50s, so it's pretty incredible. Hey, at what point do you, Mike, uh, Michael, uh, what, what, at what point do you remember first picking up an instrument and, uh, and, and playing around with it? Was it really, really early, and were you formally trained, and, and how did that happen? Well, it started with a, um, a broken German Luger toy gun that was plastic, and it cracked, and so I put, um, I could hum on the, on the edge of it, I put it in my mouth, and I would hum on it. And I had a kazoo. It was like a kazoo. You know yeah, what a kazoo yeah. is, right? Right. So this gun and my brother was in uh, high school. He had a rock band that actually opened for the doors called The Other Half. And I would sit out in the garage, and I would watch them play and practice. And the first thing I played was that kazoo <laughs> gun. <laughs> that later turned into a drum kit. When I was six years old, I, played, I got a drum kit for Christmas. And I started playing drums. And uh, then I realized that none of the neighbors wanted to play the instruments. They just wanted to play tennis rackets, and I got bored on drums. So (laughs) I taught myself guitar when I was 14. Some friends just showed me a few chords, and then that was my new instrument. Um, And I didn't get into theory and playing piano and all that until my um, early college years after high school. I was just full guitar at first after the short drum stint. Really? That's neat. Um, And then from there, I went to, you know, in uh, Santa Monica City College. I studied for two years, got my liberal arts degree, moved to, to Northridge, and was going to get my major in music. And then just kind of realized I didn't want to teach, and I didn't want to. I wanted to like get focused on my career and being a you know a, a composer and a and a and a band member and a you know a successful artist. So yeah. I ended up not completing the Northridge uh, education, but I still learned a lot there and. Uh, in the city college um, thing, I just t- learned a lot about arranging and conducting and theory. And again, you know, I learned piano. So a lot of our songs came after that part that I actually wrote on the piano. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. you know, my education and stuff kind of happened organically as I went, you know, but I didn't really study music officially until, you know, college. Yeah. Wow. And- I did take some private lessons, but it was all about learning, you know, in the white room and stuff. It, it wasn't really as much theory at first. Right, right, right. Scott, I believe you have a question here. Yeah, when did you and your brother and cousins first get together with the serious intent in starting a band? Well, Kip and I got together in about 1977, believe it or not. Oh. And that was the first where I had a high school kind of cover band with some other guys. And I, and the one guys, they just weren't cutting it. And so I finally, Kip's bro- older brothers, um, who were between him and the Lennon sisters in age, but they were very Cosby Stills and Nash and mm-hmm. Joni Mitchell, and they were into that whole acoustic folk music um, movement. And so I, I knew he had a beautiful voice, and I said, I think I had his brother ask him at the beach, Venice Beach, one day. He goes, Michael wants you to be in his band. <laughs> 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 so that's how Kip was asked, not directly for me, but from someone else. <laughs> and 
I'll never forget, we got together, I had my first electric guitar amp, and I played him like, Long Train Running by the Dewey Brothers, he's like, I've never heard this before. And yet he knew all the, you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Joni Mitchell, and all that, you know, Godspell, and uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, he knew all that stuff, but he didn't know, like, the Doobie Brothers, which was, like, the biggest hit on the radio, and, you know, I was in, like, listening to the music and the Doobie Brothers and all the jam and stuff, Mom and Brothers. Yeah. So it was just incredible that, that we got together and, and first started, you know, doing other songs, and then we started writing, writing our own music, like, right away, we, we started working on our own tunes took a long time to perfect the, you know the writing thing but it like pretty happened right away I was just curious if you remembered when uh, your first official gig was as Venice and, and when it when and where that took place Kip where was the first gig we had sorry my cousin Kip's here sitting okay my brother Jack's <laughs> backyard which is the same area where I got my first drum kit when I was five yeah then when I was probably 17. We played our first gig as Venice in my brother Jack's backyard in front of the garage where I got my first drum kit. So it was pretty, that's awesome. Pretty incredible. Yeah, <laughs> that's neat. The family gave us our first chance. Yeah. Well, you know, for your first uh, debut album in 1990 on Atlantic Records, uh, uh, the band you, Kip, Mark, and Pat, along with Mark Harris on bass, uh, Monroe Jones on keys, and Scott uh, Cargo on drums, how long did that version of Venice uh, in 1990, uh, how long did that team or the, you know, the, the lineup uh, exist before you guys signed actually your, your first deal with uh, Atlantic Records? You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I might have to take my lifeline call to Kip again. <laughs> how, long did, how long did the Venice with Monroe and and Scotty and and that the Magnificent Seven exist before we got the deal with Atlantic? A year, year and a half. <laughs> All right. So Mark Harris was joined uh, not not long before we started the album. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But we had been writing the songs, and that's what it was. We we lost our bass player, so we were auditioning bass players in the middle of writing a bunch of songs. And that's when we had a meeting with Danny Korchmar, yeah, yeah, um, famous producer, and worked on uh, Don Henley's big big albums, and you know played with Carol King, and just like a legend as far as I'm concerned, a guitar guy and producer. Mm-hmm. Worked with Bon Jovi too. So he got together with us and heard the songs, and then. He got really into it, and he said, you know, let's do this. And then we got Modern Records involved, which is Paul Fishkin, who used to be at uh, the old Bearsville, and I think worked with Foghat and Todd Rundgren back in the day. And then he had a label subsidiary, Modern Records, with Atlantic Distribution. And he had Stevie Nicks on his label. Her first solo stuff was on Modern. Yeah. And uh, it was part, I think she was part of owner in the label. And so he, he, you know, gave us our first shot. And that was, you know, Mark Harris joined shortly before that. Yeah. The bass player. Yeah, and what, what was the experience like, you know, working with Danny, and how much time were you given to record your first album? Uh, we were given ample time. It was back in the days when you could record at, you know, A&M Studios, and there was food budget, and like the old days, you know, which was, you never see anymore, but we were really fortunate that. It wasn't really rushed. We definitely were efficient with our time and got things done. We, we went into rehearsals at SIR. Um, before we went into the recording so that we had our shit together and worked things out with Danny. But that, that was like a life-changing experience for me to work with him and just to get his take on like a rhythm section and how to put it together. And to this day, I have, you know, effect pedals that I got from him that I, you know, the vibe and mm-hmm. his whole pocket is just incredible. I mean, he's one of my, one of my idols and to work with him was a total honor. Um, the only thing about that first album for me was it got a little bit over-tweaked and a little bit too many overdubs, and in yeah. hindsight, there were some r- rough tracks that we cut that were, to me, a little more um, aggressive and a little more slamming than polishing it and making it compressed and just, I don't know. It lost a little bit of the, ener- the original energy, but I, I really am proud of that as our first, you know, official album. I yeah. think it's really good. Well, there were there were quite a few years in between, you know, that debut and the second album uh, called Born and Raised in 1997, but... Since then, the band has, has been extremely prolific, and I, I know that you self-released uh, two discs titled Garage Demos Part 1, Slow Stuff, and Part 2, Fast Stuff, which were collections of demos and live recordings. And Was there a specific reason for the long break uh, between official projects? Well, because the, after the first record didn't work out, we were kind of sitting dead in the water, yeah. and we decided to keep, we, were keep, we kept writing, and as mm-hmm. we were writing, we were doing the stuff. And so once we started hearing all the stuff, we thought, let's just, you know, try to get some money together and put out the stuff that we do on our own at our gigs and yeah, yeah. at least get the music out there. It was, a, it was the beginning, I can 
pat myself on the back now, but it was the beginning of like being self-sufficient in the industry and trying to just you know make it for the music and get it to our fans. And if it can go further than that, that's great, but not not kind of counting on it. Um, and so we decided let's make garage demos. And since we they didn't, they kind of were we were expanding our writing horizons and experimenting. So we decided instead of trying to make it too diverse on one CD, let's make one CD of the more mellow stuff and one CD of the more rock stuff. And that's when we decided, hey, let's do Garage Demos 1 and 2. Yeah. And if people like the mellow, they buy that. And if they like the rock, they buy that. And Because uh, sure. we kind of do both. You know, We'll do a whole radio tour with two acoustic guitars, and then we'll do a full-on tour with keyboards, drums, and bass. And right. it's two different shows we can do with the same set list, you know, we just have different versions and that's been really good to be able to adapt to different environments or, Hey guys, we want to have you on our TV show, but we can only take four guys with, you know, a couple of acoustics. And then we're like, no problem. We'll do that. So it's been, uh, yeah, it's, that, that has really helped us being able to adapt. So at this time you guys had established a, a really strong reputation for, you know, amazing, you know, vocals from touring with uh, people like, like you mentioned, uh, Stevie Nicks, Jackson Brown, David Crosby. And I think even on your website, I read, I mean, some in really neat quotes uh, from David Crosby and also Jackson Brown, how they're complimenting your, your, your vocals and your harmonies. You know, I was listening to your, your a lot of the tracks during this past week. And, uh, you know, whenever I hear your, your really tight male arra- uh, vocal arrangements, it reminds me of, uh, you know, America or, um, Poco, uh, you know, right. Little River Band, and and those remember those those really rich uh, bands of uh, the eighties and seventies that they really had their their foundation based on the harmonies, the and they were beautiful harmonies, you know. Yeah. And you don't see that many uh, bands that are continuing the harmonic, you know, the you know the harmonies approach to developing their music. Um, you know, what can you say about that right now? Because it's it's now it's a very unique thing. Well, I see it. Like a little bit in the country music, you know, mm-hmm. some of these bands are three-part harmonies, the Dixie Chicks and yeah, uh, yeah. a Lady Annabellum or whatever, and that kind of thing, you know, where they're kind of based on the harmony thing. But there's nothing, there's no one kind of, let's say, carrying the torch for the people that we grew up to, the Jackson Browns, and mm-hmm. as far as the harmony thing, the CSN Eagles type thing, there's a few country bands that kind of do it, um, but I feel like, you know, there's I haven't ran into any other bands uh, like like us that have, you know, play this kind of music and sing harmony, you know, which is kind of just Southern California music, rock and roll, yeah. pop. And so that that is unique, but it's also what's been the struggle our whole life is like, oh, you guys sound like that, yeah, that's great, but uh, how do you market that? You know, there's nothing else going, you know, we can't compare you to right. Madonna or Lady Gaga or anyone, or it's not really the U2 Coldplay thing, it's kind of a different thing, you know, and yeah. it's made it a struggle, but I can't, you know, I have no regrets in anything we've been through or things we've done because we continue to stay together. We're still a band, and in the end, the music obviously is most important to us because we it hasn't been about making a lot of money because we haven't. So, for us to stay through together in the tough times as much as the you know um, good times, and that that's the key. And you know, I challenge yeah. any band to a commitment uh, face off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's been it's really helped that we're family and we're from good blood and, and good uh, good moral ethics and good family values and we keep things uh, pretty grounded. You know, there's yeah. not there's no room for egos and stuff with us. Well, that's and a rarity. We all understand that respect each other. So that that's been the saving grace, really. Yeah, that's a rarity in the in this music business. That it is. Uh, every time they hear we're related, they're like, "Oh, don't you fight all the time?" It's like, yeah. no, just the opposite. We're yeah. totally different people. We respect each other, but. We usually, you know, when the worst shit happens, we just, whoops, I said the S word. That's okay. <laughs> when the worst stuff happens, we just, um, you know, we just start laughing. We just all crack up or someone makes a joke and suddenly everything's okay, you know. So yeah. We don't take ourselves too seriously, but, um, you know, we're definitely focused on making music and getting it out to the people that want to hear it. Yeah. Anybody that would listen to your music, Michael, they, they would definitely, you know, probably their jaws would drop when they hear your harmonies. Talk to me a little bit about the arranging of, of the harmonies. I mean, whose lap does that eventually f- fall on or is that a collaborative effort between you guys or uh, how, how are the, the, the vocal arrangements actually, uh, how do they end up uh, being so amazing? Well, I think it totally starts with a collaborative effort of everyone kind of grabbing their natural note. And then as soon as there's, like, a, a debate or, a, like, oh, we need one more note, then I can usually pull out the old theory brain and play the chord and find another fun note that we can add. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not going to take 
credit for the vocal arrangements, but um, we kind of all play different roles, and my role is to kind of, when that note that no one can really hear that we have to sing, or they always give it to me, of course, because they find the notes that are easy, and then they're like, we need one more <laughs> note. And, okay, you got to do that one. But, uh, but I, you know, I welcome that, and I, I love that challenge, and, and it just sounds amazing when you hear the four-part harmony versus a three-part harmony, which, you know, even the country people I mentioned aren't really doing the four-part, they're doing three-part, and... Um, yeah, it's just an incredible feeling, but it's definitely collaborative, and then I try to help out um, if we need to get a little more intricate or want to do something a little fancier, then I'll, I'll kind of say, okay, you do this note, you do that note, and I'll step in with a little more, you know, theory kind of vibe to it. Yeah. You know, Born and Raised uh, was the band's first for the indie label Vanguard Records, and the first album of yours as producer. Uh, the Venice sound really seemed to gel on that disc, and the vocal harmonies in particular really jumped out to the forefront and gave the album you know, a great deal of warmth. Uh, was it a difficult transition for you uh, as a performer to now also produce, or was it a natural progression after you know, overseeing all the uh, demos and, and things yeah. that you had been doing since your first album? Yeah, it was a natural progression, and to be honest with you, it was really because there wasn't uh, a budget to bring in a big producer and stuff and take that risk you know, of paying someone... 30, 40 grand up front and hoping the record did well to get your money back. So it was really, I think, Vanguard signed us based on the Garage Demo stuff we did. That was the meeting we had, was talking about that. Hmm. And then he said, well, I'd like to do a new album. So we were like, oh, okay, that'd be great. So we got into, you know, right in it, and we decided to pick a little more of a focused, kind of a, a little more of an acoustic thing and make it more about the vocals, because we realized that at, in those times that we could probably stand out more if we weren't trying to be too edgy and rock band about it and let it be about the vocals um and we came up to the house that i'm literally walking around in right now um to write most of the songs and then we recorded the album up here so it's a house up in the hills of vista california which is inland from uh oceanside uh -huh. a little bit north of san diego and it's absolutely beautiful on a hill that um, my dad used to come out for work, and he bought this little piece of land um, for $70,000 or something. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and now it's like this crazy, you know, it's just, it's, it's so crazy outside. I don't want to tell you guys because you're going to hate yourself. <laughs> so I'm, I'm walking in, on the edge of the pool, walking around the pool, talking to you guys while I hear in the, the other guys in the band in the house working on the new song we started today. So. You know, I'm thinking Eddie, Eddie and Scott, we should, this should have been a remote. We should be out there in person. Definitely do. Yeah. <laughs> well, I could, I could probably shoot some just video for you, and I'll, I'll send that to you so you can okay. read it, watch it and weep. Yeah, we'll just have to Maybe we'll do that when the new album comes out. Well, there we'll, you go. Let's do that. We'll do a whole video thing. That'd be fun. Well, you know, so many staples of your live shows are on Born and Raised, you know, like Starting Here Again, If, if I Were You, Bad Timing Song, Baby's Calling, and, and some others. And was the song selection process, you know, heavily dictated by uh, the response these songs received when you played them at shows before you recorded the album? Uh, I think it's based on both. It's it's based on it's a based on a little bit of everything. Part of it is our personal ones, like which ones do we love playing, which ones do the fans respond to, and then uh, yeah, what kind of show are we doing? I mean, is it this yeah. kind of is it a sit down thing? Is it a dance night? Then let's do the other. You know, so again, we're I take it a gig by gig. I always feel weird when people contact me about shows and I'm like, they're like, we want Venice to play. And I'm like, okay, well, tell me what the parties. Do you want acoustic? Do you want you? Know, well, we want Venice, and I think well. And I can really, you know, I like to adapt to what the environment's going to be. If it's going to be a little house concert and 50 people over, then I'll do a certain kind of show. But that's the beauty of being with a band that's been together as long as we have, is we can pull that rabbit out of the hat right there and just go, oh, let's do, let's do these four, you know. And mm -hmm. although there hasn't been any huge success, we've had, um, you know, moderate and successful success <laughs> with, the, with the songs we do have, and we play them enough to, you know, People do recognize some of them, and so it's, it's pretty cool. Here's a track from the band's self-titled album that was released back in 1990. This is the track called Hideaway Hill. Much at all. 
I was just curious, you know, for any given project, any of the projects you've done, I mean, about how many songs do you guys usually develop or, or what is there, what do you guys do in order, I mean, do you guys, if you've got 10 albums, 10 tracks you're going to do for an album, are, are you, uh, do you guys generally come up with 15 or 16 tracks or more and then pick from those or do you guys yeah. really concentrate we're, on? We're usually working on, you know, 16, 17 songs and, you know, 12, 13 or those end up making it. Um, in hindsight, looking back, I probably would have held up some albums if it wasn't so, uh, 
planned on the calendar and everything to, to hold up for even better songs than, yeah. than what we've come up with on certain albums where I kind of feel like, ah, we, we kind of missed the mark on that. And, but I think every artist does that. You know, everyone looks back at their stuff and goes, ah, I should have done this, or that song is horrible, and then that becomes their biggest hit. So us as artists, you know, we, we just second-guess everything and we just overthink everything. So yeah, yeah. I try to be careful to try to write songs to make them hits and to make people like them and just write them because we love them and... You know, that, that whole game, we played that game, trying to get singles and, oh, you guys should write a single so you can get on the radio. It just never works to intentionally do it, you know? Right, right. So it's got it's to just happen. It's got to come from the heart. And it's, sure. It's really, uh, that's the sad lesson I've learned 30 years later, you know? It's, it's, <laughs> it's a lot easier than I thought it was. <laughs> but overthinking everything. In 1999, um, you guys came out with the album Spin Art, which was another fantastic collection. You know, some of the songs that stand out, you know, uh, The Man You Think I Am, End of the World, uh, Poor You, Poor Me, Poor Love, have such great energy. One specific track I wanted to ask you about was the cover, your first cover song for the band that you guys cut, of Fleetwood Mac's Landslide. You did such a tremendous job on it. Uh, did you approach Stevie Nicks to get her blessing before recording it? No, we, you know, we actually were fortunate enough to have played it with her. She's joined us in Santa Monica at this little venue we used to play, and she came and saw us and sang that song with us. Uh, later, I was asked, um, in 91, I was asked to join her um, Whole Lot of Trouble tour, which was kind of the best of Stevie Nicks. That was unbelievable playing, you know, um, Rhiannon and all these unbelievable Lindsey Buckingham yeah, right. songs, you know, guitar parts and stuff, and did a six-week tour with her. That was incredible. So after that, you know, this, the landslide had become a staple in our set list just because Mark, you know, sings it so amazingly, but also because she had joined us and kind of gave us her blessing that she loved the way we did it. We did it with her in Denver in a huge, in the stadium in Denver together with her. So it kind of is a song that's as a cover is like closer than just being a cover song. It's like, you know, because uh, our fortunate relationship with Stevie Nicks and how that developed and what came out of all that. So it really just kind of reminds us of that that time. You know, another track uh, on this album that's uh, deeply poignant, it's uh, The Family Tree. It was written by you, uh, Kip, Mark, and John Vester. Tell, yeah. us, tell us a little bit about this song and how it uh, came to be. Well, The Family Tree, you know, it, uh, we were in North, North Virginia, I think, or North, maybe North Dakota. And we were traveling with a, a singer-songwriter, David Wilcox. Oh, yeah. And we were, he was playing a show right before us, and we somehow were crossing paths there. I think he's from there. Um, and I was in uh, Motel 6 or somewhere similar in town, a very simple, small hotel. And it was raining that night, and I think it was during a radio tour we were doing or a festival tour maybe in Colorado. And um, I came up with the um, guitar part, the main guitar riff, yeah. That thing, yeah. and then I came up with a melody um, for that verse. Da, 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 you know, just that whole thing. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any words; I was just humming it. And I don't want to sound lame or anything, but I actually kind of got teary-eyed. Like it, it, all of a sudden, this emotion came over me. Like this song needs to mean something that makes me cry, or I don't know. The music, like that, I was spitting out, totally overwhelmed me. And so I recorded it real quick, and then I when I played it for Kip and. Um, I played it for Kip first, and he and I worked on it. And then we brought in Mark, uh, Mark Lennon, and John Vester to help us finish it lyrically. Um, and Kip, I think, came up with the family tree, the actual line. But the music was an idea I had um, in a hotel room with a guitar and just me humming the melody. And we just took it from there, yeah. But it's definitely one of our you know, top songs as far as people associating with our band. It's probably one of our top, especially over in Europe. You know, you also co-wrote More of a Miracle with another uh, one of our former podcast guests, uh, Bruce Geich. And, uh, oh, yeah, Bruce is awesome. Yeah, how did you guys hook up? How did you guys get together for that tune? Well, there was a gentleman named Steve Buckingham that did some work with Dolly Parton. He was a Nashville guy, and he started uh, working together with uh, Vanguard Records. And so before the Spin Art album, Vanguard wanted to send us to Nashville to do some co-writing with some new people to just try to get some new energy and new... And we just had a blast. Kip and I literally, like, every day we'd have different writing appointments, and they just booked us separate from each other so that we'd work with different people. Well, I, fortunate for me, one day um, I got with Bruce, and uh, we wrote, uh, actually, we wrote two songs. One of them is more of a miracle, and the other one was uh, Mary on My Mind. Okay. 
those are the ones we started, and then of course you know we finished those with with the guys in Venice and stuff. But yeah. but uh, so I was introduced to him through. Uh, Steve Buckingham, who was like a producer that worked with Dolly Parton and stuff, and he hooked us up to just do a writing thing we had never met before, and we just totally hit it off. And then Jeff Pinnig was brought in, who's a Nashville lyricist, and he was brought in after we had our melodies and the music, and he helped us write the words. Branches in the wind Still standing here together One more storm to weather We'll get through it yet So we're gathered here Holding on to each other To let go of another Now as we say goodbye to one of our own We may be lonely but we're not alone Though the leaves will fall and the tears will flow May it always comfort us to know The family tree will always grow Father down to son Mother to daughter Thicker than water Keep a candle burning for the ones we'll miss And when we say goodbye to one of our own We may be lonely but we're not alone Though the leaves will fall and the tears will Comfort us to know the family tree will always grow stronger than the wind can blow. You know, Venice has developed, you know, such this amazing fan base in the Netherlands. And uh, was it around the time of spin art that your popularity was beginning to take hold there? And, and how did a band that's not really known that much outside of California first come to perform in that area of the world and, and develop such an incredible following? Well, our record was um, an, an import in Holland at one of the cool record stores and this guy that turns a lot of the DJs on the music. Well, the record store got our Born and Raised album and turned a guy named J.D., initials J.D., who's a tall Dutch guy that has his own music radio show and music TV show. Kind of like a Kurt Loder of the old MTV, you know, like that kind of yeah, guy. Right, like right, right, yeah. You know, the music guy to correspond with what's going on and all that. Well, he got a hold of the album from this record store owner and loved it and invited us over um, to play on his TV show, which is... He had just done like Joe Jackson live in his in his house, and then he I think he did something with Jackson way back. So he invited us to be part of this. We were like, sure, whatever, you know. We flew to Holland. We did um, a concert, one concert that night, which was about 300 Dutch people that we'd never 
first time playing in Holland, and the next morning we were to film this TV show. We had no idea the impact it was going to have on our on our life and in our career in Holland. Mm-hmm. And within the next week, you know, we we had sold like another three thousand records, and then it's just because we got. Um, I mean, next week after the airing of the TV show, and that's what started the ball rolling for us. And was the exposure like a forty-minute TV music special of Venice with interviews and live acoustic performance in this guy's house? Wow! And that's what really turned started the ball. But this guy JD, who's like a musicologist in Holland, also turned us on to this very, um, you know, um, incredible booking agent guy named Willem Venema, who's a real character in Holland. But man, he's just a man of his word, and I've been with him ever since. And he's been through different companies, and he and I have just always stayed together. But he gave us our first, you know, Pink Pop Festival and, um, you know, just got us on all the Boss Pop Festivals and the big festivals to get the name out. And that's really, he's a lot, you know, a big part of that puzzle. Um, And then, you know, we would play live, and then, of course, we would do our best to try to deliver. And people found out we could sing those harmonies live as well as on the record, if not even more powerful and so it just snowballed, and then we just kept touring and touring. We didn't have a lot of radio play in Holland. People think we're like big stars over there, but we're kind of under the radar, and it's just been word of mouth. And, you know, we, we now go over there on a fall tour and play to, you know, twenty to 30,000 people in six weeks. Um, so it's just been this incredible windfall um, in Europe, in, in Amsterdam of all places, which is a total awesome country and city. and. Yeah. Yeah, we, we couldn't be happier having that be our home away from home. Right. Well, speaking of the Netherlands and uh, and that part of the world, in 2003, you uh, recorded uh, an import-only live effort, and it was called Two Meter Sessies, um, and it was made up of two radio performances. The first that was recorded at Hideaway uh, uh, Studios yeah. in uh, yeah. yeah in Venice, and then the other one that was recorded in um, in the Netherlands in '98. But uh, tell us a little bit about this because you had actually Jackson Brown and David Crosby join you on a on a few of the tracks. Talk to us about that, would you? Yeah. So the Two Meter Sessions record is the same guy JD that brought us over for his TV show. And what he would do is he would release CDs of the people that were on his show. Mm-hmm. That would be the interview, and he actually did a DVD as well with us. And he would release CDs of that music from that show, and it would be edited together and. So it's the same guy that put that out with, and he partnered with Universal Records in Holland, and we have a, a gold record, and we've, we're about 10,000 over a gold record right now. Um, but that, when, we, when they came to America, they wanted to shoot some stuff um, here. Mm-hmm. They came up to the house that I'm standing at right now, the, the writing house, the family house we have up here on the hill, and they came up here and they filmed this, um, you know, the family tree out on the swing looking over the mountains, and then we showed them where we recorded the Born and Raised album in the big, big empty, like, uh, recreation room. And so we did a live session out there, and they recorded that, and that's part of that release. But it's the same guy, J.D., that, that put that together and put that out. And when they came to America, um, we arranged for Jackson to do a song with us. We did Four Dancer with Jackson in his studio. It was unbelievable, and they uh-huh. filmed it and, and recorded it. And then we did, David showed up to Jackson's studio, and we got to do Guinevere with David Crosby. So... That was unbelievable. We filmed wow. that and recorded that. And those are both on that album, the yeah. Demeter Sessies Live thing. Very um, cool. But, man, what an incredible experience. Well, I think it was in 2003. that It was kind of the beginning of uh, a steady stream of, of studio albums uh, since signing with the Universal Music Group. And I think this one was called Welcome to the Rest of Your Life. And uh, I think you had Terry Manning producing that one, right? Yes. And, he, you know, he's worked with, you know, Al Green, George uh, George Thorogood, Joe Walsh, and, and many others. And was it? Uh, I was curious to know about. Was this the label's choice to go with another producer? And well, uh, our, our kind of manager co-label guy um, was talking to people and trying to find a possible producer so that I could be a guitar player and, yeah. and give my input without having to run the whole show. Yeah. Um, and so after interviewing different people, we actually talked to the guy that did. Um, he did John Cougar Mellencamp, and he did Tracy uh, Chapman. What's his name? Uh, shoot, his name's... Uh, it's escaping me. So we had meetings with him, and with and then we met with Terry. We absolutely loved him. Um, and he came to California and, you know, came out, and we had dinner and, and had to talk about what he saw the record being and came to a live show. And then we uh, were we had to suffer through living in the Bahamas for... 
four <laughs> weeks making a record at the yeah. place where the ACDC made Back in Black and Bob Marley recorded and the Talking Heads made their uh, big album. So that yeah. was a drag. You guys, <laughs> you guys suffer way too much, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I know, for a band that's never made it, it's a pretty good life, right? Yeah. Well, um, you know, just just adding to that question or that thought about slipping from uh, your producer role back into just concentrating on on guitar work, but what I mean, in a well, sense, what happened? It didn't end up happening that way, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. I was just going to going to ask if it was if you were just no, solidly just out of. He did bring a lot to the record, but it yeah. was totally it should have been a co-production thing at the least. So I see. that was a little that's water under the bridge, and you know, I'm I not see. Gonna, that's lessons learned and all that, but he he did bring something to the album. I'm not going to deny it, but I definitely was, you know, doing a lot of extra work that that, uh, in my opinion, just uh, deserved a credit, if not money, just at least a credit. Sure. So that's enough. I won't talk anything more bad. Everything's positive <laughs> from here. Okay. Okay. All right. We'll just move on. <laughs> yeah, the band then recorded the live DVD live at the Royal Cray Theater. Yeah. Uh, which was fantastic. It's just, you know, a fantastic, unbelievable accomplishment. The music, the setting, the overall production of this disc is first rate. Any yeah, recollections of that particular show and how the shoot went that evening? Well, it was so last minute, you know. We thought, let's if we're going to tape a show, it's got to be a big one, and it's got to be one after we've been on the road for a while because we don't want to be jet-lagged and we don't want to be, you know, just getting our act together with all this new, you know, it's just a lot of coordinating and stuff. You want it to run smoothly. So it was one night. We didn't have any rehearsals. We, you know, they taped during sound check, and we just rolled it. And I think it's it blows my mind when I watch it now and just think, oh my god, we just like did that. We didn't overthink it. We didn't plan it. We didn't, you know, they just filmed it, and we thought, oh, there's a camera out there. Oh, cool, you know, which in hindsight was probably really good because it didn't give us the opportunity to worry. Um, and after after the fact, you know, when they cut it together, we did get in there with. Um, our personal lighting guy who works in the movie business, and, and he's seen a zillion shows for the last 20 years um, when we were in the smallest clubs, and he knows, like, who to focus on and what songs on. So he went in while we were on tour on the off days. He went in and sat with the editor guy and grabbed some other shots and held on some things a little longer because they were cutting it like an MTV, you know, bow, bow, just cut, cut, cut. We are like, oh, come on. You're not even, you know, it's just close-up after close-up. So anyway, he really helped to, to pull that together um, and pulled the energy and the performance out of the the footage after looking at you know being able to grab some extra shots after their initial cut but that that show still stands up you know as like one of our best um releases as far as the production quality and and everything about it it just really captures the whole thing yeah hey and michael you, you came back right away with uh, the album uh, in 2004 pacific standard time um yeah did you guys have any songs left from, from the previous project that you that carried over into this uh into this project were they uh, or were they all brand new compositions you know i think those were mostly new things mm -hmm. uh, i think that was mostly new the the born and raised album was definitely stuff there's a few things that are on garage demos yeah. that we carried on to born and raised um, if I were you, and uh, yeah, different songs like that. But uh, Circus in Town, I think, was carried to Born and Raised from right. Garage Demos. Mm -hmm. But uh, the Pacific Standard Time was kind of uh, a, a different, kind of newer era. Yeah. Well, you were definitely churning them out. I mean, it, right around this time. I mean, even up to Amsterdam, which was, uh, I believe, it was 2006, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, most of the bands were, you know, just taking a little hiatus between the records. You guys were just pumping these babies out. Was there? Wow, it's funny because I look at the Beatles doing three in a year, and I'm going, well, "What's wrong with them?" <laughs> I think you're right. I mean, it's just yeah. But, so I, I, it's funny. You're the first ones that said that that we're pumping them out. I'm thinking, God, well, well, now especially, I can look at it and go, "It's been six years since a studio album." Although we put out some live stuff because we've been touring so much, so I guess what I was trying to say is that during the life of a band, there's there's some hot spots of creativity and writing that you know for some reason something's triggering the the um, you know the vibe and the, and the thoughts and the creativity to 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 pump out music. I mean, if it starts coming, you know, and this must have been one of those times. That's what I'm getting at, right? Yeah, totally agree with you. Yeah. yeah. So in 2008 came, you know, this really laid back live unplugged album called Good Evening, Night of Acoustic Music, followed by its kind of like its sibling, you know, Electric Live and Amplified in 2009. Both albums truly cover the broad spectrum, you know, of the live sound that Venice produces. Yeah. You know, in addition to this, there was also the Venice Christmas album. There was a studio greatest hits collection called Homegrown, uh, another Garage Demo CD. Also, your brother Mark 
has released you know, uh, a couple of different solo projects along the way. Uh, it's our understanding that you oversee this operation from co-writing, producing, and engineering to booking and even running the merchandise fulfillment you know, for the website. So my question is, you know, how many pots of coffee do you go through a day? <laughs> <laughs> One pot, maybe two to three cups. <laughs> and then I try to, uh, I try to, you know, move on from there and have lunch and drink water and or have a beer later. I don't know, but um, it is. I, I don't personally oversee Mark's stuff. That's totally his own thing. Um, but everything else, yes, I do, and I've just done out of, uh, you know, lack of finding someone that's willing to step up and do it um, and take it to a level higher than I can take it. And it's just tough to find that, you know, without someone. Wanting a big chunk of the money and all that other stuff, but even then, you know, the the it's just out of necessity and out of you know keeping the vision close to heart and and trying to stay on a course. You know, you get too many people involved, and everyone starts telling you different stuff, and then suddenly you're you're not getting anything accomplished. So it's kind of been out of force a habit, um, being forced into the corner, sort of. But uh, I've learned so much from it, and I just get stronger. And you know, uh, I I don't really. I don't cry over it or anything. I just kind of take it in, and, and I've learned so much about the overall business from having to be hands-on with it. Let's take a break, and I want to take a listen to a track from Venice's 2002 album called Welcome to the Rest of Your Life, and this is a track called Think Again. This is a story I sing for you. It may sound funny, but no, it's true. I hope you get it before I'm through. I hope you do I miss the straw man And daddy too I've heard the lion The tin man's blue I've seen the witches Both good and bad Well I'm glad I had about life to me I've seen more than most people 
know, Venice has taken a, a bit of a break for the past couple of years or so um, as, as Kip, Mark, and Pat were hired by Roger Waters to be part of his global tour of the Wall concerts. And it's it's been during this downtime that you decided to start Lennon Records and produce, you know, separate solo artists. And one, one is your older brother, Tom Lennon. The, the other is uh, uh, an artist named uh, Christian Dupree. And the third is someone who actually has a special connection to the Venice family named Charlie Vaughn. And can you tell us how these projects went and, and a little bit about each of the each album? Well, the, Charlie Vaughn is... Um Kip's son that he gave up for adoption when he was about 18 or 19. Okay. They found each other later in Charlie's life when he decided he wanted to meet his biological father. Wow. Um, and they met, and it was a freaky thing because he just happened to be a songwriter and a singer and, <laughs> like, 23 years old, and we are like, oh, my God, this is crazy. And he's Which in the blood, yeah. He's younger, and he plays and writes and writes music. So I totally kind of took him under my wing um, musically and just tried to help him take these songs and put them together and put them on a, you know, in a CD and make a record. Um, wow. And we worked at it. Both records were kind of worked over time. The first record, I really had to do everything with and help him. The second record, he stepped up and learned the recording thing and how to record himself and was able to take a lot of the experimenting on his own and not have me sitting around while he tried, you know, three different guitar parts or tried a different vocal. And then I'd come down and... and interact again and add something or say take that out or don't do that chorus or you know just give my input and then let them run again yeah. so that was a evolving relationship that charlie and i had over two records i made with him and then my brother tom was you know as i mentioned my first days of playing the kazoo in the garage that was his <laughs> band that opened for the doors and his band that was like the rock and roll dream until he got drafted to vietnam and then he had to give up music well now he's married and retired and has four kids incredible kids Wow. Um, one of them, one of the sons is Ted Lennon, who's a pretty established singer-songwriter that knows Jack Johnson and is in big in Japan. And yeah, uh, you know, you can find him on on iTunes and stuff, and he's great. But Tom finally started getting back into playing guitar and writing songs, and he just kind of went down the more of a folk Americana country kind of vibe. And he just writes the best songs, and he's got the greatest voice. And so I I recorded him, made a record with him, which is just bare bones, organic, you know. Um, record recording of his songs. You know, I, I play drums and bass mm-hmm. and guitar and different instruments. Um, and uh, Charlie even sings on that on one song. And my daughter Avalon is now becoming the little performer. And so she's sings. She's part of the daily routine, the Charlie Vaughn thing. She's also sang on Tom's record on a couple songs. So very nice. They're already coming up below me. You know, I can wear the thick Coke bottle glasses and play the programmable <laughs> keyboard, and my daughter can entertain the troops. <laughs> wow. How, how old is Avalon? Avalon is uh, 16. Wow. She's a volleyball stud and a, a very talented musical person that hasn't really decided to dive into the music thing yet. But, uh, you know, she's a natural. It's very obvious. Yeah, I heard her on one of the, the, the lead vocals on Tom's album. Very nicely done. Yeah, yeah. And uh, she did, we did, um, when we did a little tour, I took those guys out. Uh, getting back on subject, I'm sorry, I kind of went off on a tangent. That's okay, that's all right. But, um... So, yeah, so while the guys were on the wall thing, I thought, well, i got to do something with, you know, what I do. So I finished up the Charlie thing, I did the record with Tom, and then um, later on, on the second leg of the wall tour, I did a record with a Christian Dupree. Actually, before I did a record with Christian, after Tommy and Charlie's record, the guys were on the wall tour in, in Europe. I went over there with my daughter, Charlie Vaughn, my brother. We put together a, a band with Venice's bass player, Mark Harris, and Venice's drummer, Jamie Wallum. And we did a six-show tour in Holland because the Wall Tour was in Holland at that time, and Venice did one show there on their day off. And Very we did cool. a huge sold-out show in Amsterdam. Well, following that, the next week, I did six shows with Charlie Vaughn, my brother Tom, Avalon, me, and the two Venice rhythm section. And it was unbelievable, like 300 people a night. Sold 300 of each of their CDs, which was incredible. And just had this incredible experience, like all backing each other up. and do a, We did some Venice stuff. And uh, it was incredible. Well, when I got home from that, I, the guys left for the next leg, and I um, was introduced to a young 22-year-old singer-songwriter that was classically trained on cello from uh, uh, my brother-in-law and said, hey, this kid, I knew him when he was growing up, and I've kind of been like a you know, stepfather to him and helped him out, and uh, he's got some, a lot of songs and a lot of people telling him what to do, and I'd love if you'd give him some input, so... He sent me the music, and I was really interested and said, hey, if you can come down here, I can help you get stuff recorded. I, luckily, I have time. And so we did some demos, and he absolutely loved it. And then 
we finished his record in June, I guess. And so now I got um, four records, three that are officially on the Lennon website right now, Lennon Records website. Um, and I don't have any huge, you know, um, connection right now or any big marketing plan thing. I'm just trying to get these things recorded and get an arsenal of real singer-songwriters and artists and um, try to find partners that can help me, you know, get the music out. But I, I feel like I have a, a knack for helping people, and I've been, I, I realize as I'm working with these younger artists that I've been through a hell of a lot of stuff, and I've been, made a hell of a lot of records, even though they're, they're not big, successful things, but the experience has just taught me so much, and I'm able to share so much with these guys making their first record and try to pass along these tips that I've learned over years and years and years. So sure. I love the new role I play, but... Um, all that said, there's nothing like getting back to Venice, which we're this week and this weekend is about. The guys are all coming down, and we're we're back here where we wrote all the all the big albums, and we're we're starting a whole new batch of songs. And so I, I this is like my bread and butter, and then that other stuff is great side work that I can do. But just once the guys come home and we sing together and stuff, there's nothing like that for me. You know, the unspoken language we all have. We just hit hit it right on the head, and we start singing, and it just falls into place. And um, as much as I love working with other people, there's nothing like that comfort of like my brother and my two cousins back in the fold and just doing our thing. That's yeah, great. Very cool. Hey, Michael, go ahead and give us a little bit of information as to where somebody can go for more information and, and actually buy the, buy the music. Well, Venice Central is a great place for anything Venice. It has our tours listed. It has a link to our store where you can buy all the music and the DVDs. Um, and it's got, you know, links to the Facebook. We have a Facebook page, Venice Central, and we're on Facebook. Um, and anything, if you just go to VeniceCentral.com, you get links to the store and every, everything else you possibly want to do. Um, we have a number of our, not everything, but a lot of our catalog is also on iTunes. Um, and then the Lennon Records stuff is all available at CD Baby and on my LennonRecords.net site, which is my personal record site where you can buy it directly there, and we actually make a little better money if you buy it from, from us, so hopefully if you have a choice, if you could. <laughs> yeah, That's LennonRecords.net, and all the music samples, you can listen to stuff before you buy it, and uh, you can purchase it right through there, and I think those are all the contacts. Very cool. Um, just, just, uh, just curious about, you said you're together right now, and you're working on, you're obviously working on some new material, is that right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, what what else is next for Venice? I mean, are, uh, after this album project, are you guys going to go back out on tour? Are you going back to Europe? Or you... Well, right now, the we're, everyone's in town, and we're going to Holland in November to just do six shows, just okay. to say hello to the fans over there, because it's sure. been so long since we played. Yep. So we're doing, like, a acu- acoustic thing. and um, But right now, we play, this weekend, we play in two shows in San Diego. So okay. the house that our family has is in San Diego. Um, or near there, and so we're down here, came down early, we play Friday and Saturday, but we came down early to write, work on some new tunes, or to start working on new tunes, then the guys leave for the wall tour of South America in the end, at the end of January of 2012. Okay. So yeah, cool. we're trying to get a lot of work done now, get things started, and get things in motion to where we can communicate while they're on the road and throw, throw ideas around and all that. Well, we'll definitely have to stay in touch uh, and let us, you know, be sure to let us know when the album comes out and, and any other updates about where you're going to be touring, and, and we'll be sure to pass those along to uh, the Inside Music Cast listeners. Yes. Yeah, that is awesome. And I, I, uh, I, I'm really looking forward to that next. Um, it's been a long time since we had that next um, level or that next step on the ladder, you know, for the Venice thing, and, and we're, we're all really excited to... Uh, step up and do that but we just have to work around this wall tour which has been an incredible opportunity and turned us on to a lot of new people that didn't know who we were but have found us through the pink floyd websites um so that has been incredible and and we just have to kind of work in the little holes when they're home and when they're away um, and try to get something out for for next fall we're hoping very cool. Michael Lennon, thank you so much. Uh, this is about um, enough time that we've got uh, for today. But, hey, thanks for giving us the, a lot of real neat, insightful information. And uh, and I think our fans are just going to dig. If they haven't learned about you before, they're going to learn about you now, and they're going to get your music. So, hey, thank you so much for spending some time with us. And uh, and, and thanks to Scott Gross down in uh, Tampa for joining us today. Absolutely, Scott. Thanks. Hey, Scott. <laughs> uh, I can't thank you guys enough for the uh, for the exposure and just the interest, and it just means everything to 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 have that uh, 
you know, opportunity to talk to you guys. No well, it's our it's our pleasure, man. Also, want to thank uh, Matt Levitz, who's also uh, you yes. know a great guy, and you know was instrumental in putting us together Absolutely. for this interview too. Yeah. And Matt Levitz does our website stuff. He does our Facebook. He um, edits our video projects. He, um, I mean, he's like my right arm through a lot of this stuff. So yes. Absolutely. He's an uber-talented uber yeah, guy. Yeah, he is. Very thanks cool. Thanks again, Michael. All right, guys. Thank you so much. We'll All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Special thanks to Michael Lennon of Venice for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Also, very special thanks to Inside Music Cast correspondents Scott Gross, Brian Pearson, Kim Riley, Max Zape, Uwe Reith, and Mikhail Lingstrom. And please visit our website at InsideMusicCast.com where you can catch up on all of our past interviews, read the Inside Opinion blog, and check out additional bonus content. Inside Music Cast is also on Facebook, where you can become a fan and join in on music conversation with Inside Music Cast fans from around the world. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.